We're going to begin a new series today, and actually it's, um, I just amazed as I follow what I believe God's Holy Spirit puts in my heart to do, how well things fit together. I've got the kind of mind that likes it when things fit together, and when things don't fit together, especially in the preaching, you know, that's often the times when the Spirit of God is just kind of doing a shotgun thing in people's lives, but my mind has trouble with that, because I like to know this follows this, and this makes sense with this, and this all fits in with this, and then I'm happy, but whether I'm happy or not is not so important. It's whether he's happy. That's what's important. So, but we're beginning a new series today, but what it actually is is uh, the other side of what we've been talking about. We've spent a number of weeks now talking about idolatry and idols and not, not idols such as necessarily, you know, a Buddha in your, in your kitchen or something like that, uh, although that obviously can be an idol, but it's talking about hidden idols of the heart. And an idol we talked about was anything that you make to be your God. That we talked about God introduced Himself to Israel by saying, I, in the first commandment that He gave to Moses on the mountain is, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any god. That a, an idol is anything you've made for yourself to be a god, which is a source to you of anything, whatever it is. We talked about that. So we talked about what an idol is, that it's when you make your own God. Now we're going to be shifting over to, okay, we can't make our own God. Let's find out who God is. That sound worthwhile? In fact, we're going to find out this literally will change your life. Now, I want to share something with you before we can get into the study, because if I were to talk to you this morning about something from nuclear physics, which I'm not qualified to talk to you about, I've got a brother that, that, um, that has an undergraduate and a, and a doctorate degree from MIT. And I went, I read, I, he showed me his doctoral dissertation. I couldn't pronounce the title. <laughs> I couldn't pronounce it, let alone understand what it said, let alone understand anything he said in there. So I am not qualified to do that. But if I were to talk to you about a subject you knew nothing about, your ears are going to perk up if you were interested in it, and you're going to be like a blank slate because you don't know anything about it. Therefore, I can just delve right into it and say, this is what we're going to talk about, this is what it's about, and we don't have to unlearn anything. But when we talk about something that you know something about, and God wants to show you something you don't know, we have to deal with this thing in our mind, which is, well, I already know that. And this is going to be encouraging, entertaining, or, or you know, we're going to come out blessed. But I want to tell you, before we get into this subject, you don't know what we're talking about. You know it to a level. I don't know what we're talking about. There's something that God wants to do in this church and in your life. And I believe it's not just this church, because I've begun to hear other people teaching along these same lines. And that's always encouraging, that the Spirit of God, we're in tune with what the Spirit of God is saying. And that God wants to call us back to something that we already know, but to take us to a deeper level of understanding, a deeper level of reality of this. And so we're going to talk, and turn with me to to Matthew chapter 16. To Matthew chapter 16. This will be life-changing. Let me say that from two sides. This will be life-changing to you if you get it. It will also be life-changing to you if you don't. I really believe the Spirit of God is drawing the church to a point 
a fork in the road where we make some decisions in our lives. But the power to make the decision, the right decisions, and some of you know what I'm talking about, the power to make the right decisions that you know you need to make are not because you just decide you need to do it. Some of those you've already made, and there's some decisions and changes you can make, but there's some that you cannot make unless God helps you to make them. And the way God helps you to make them is often not the way you think He would. And this is what the Lord began to deal with me about somewhere around the middle of last year. He says, it's time to make an adjustment in the body. And I've talked to you about this before. It's like a chiropractic adjustment where it's time to get things in line because when things are in line, then God can move the way He wants to move. When they're out of line, God has to move around the things that are out of line. And so the full power, the full force, the full effect of what God wants to do in your life, in this church, and through this church cannot happen. And God's very patient, but very persistent to bring us to that place of alignment. And what really triggered this is I began to hear a series, I mean, it had been going on for a while, of just reports of people that were doing foolish things. And I'm not even talking about in this church. Leaders. They were falling, doing things. Lord, what's going on? Is there anybody who's got, as Miriam Brown would say, a sane brain anymore? Is there anybody thinking straight? I mean, you ever wonder? Is, the world's going crazy. The world I can understand, but the church is doing it. And it grieved me because I found somebody, found some situation, not here, somebody else that I was, you know, some ministry of falling, and then this was last year, a long time ago, and I just, it really grieved me. And I went to God and says, what's wrong? And the Lord says, because we're out of alignment. He says, the way to make the corrections isn't to talk about what needs to be corrected. The way to make, there's a way to make a correction that will bring everything back in line. And the Lord showed me what to do with that. And that's what the goal of all of this study is. And so when you hear it, it's going to sound very simple. When you hear it, you almost may think, oh, it's that? That means you haven't heard it yet. Because when you hear it and you go, wow, down in here, it moves you down in here, that's when you're beginning to get it. So if you don't get it right away, don't worry, we're not going to talk about this just one week. You know me. (laughs) (laughs) there's no just thing as once and done because I believe that this is the theme for this year we had a theme for last year Ephesians 4 which was who we are as the body of Christ this is the theme for this year and a number of things will come out of this theme and go in different directions but the root of it the the, the tap root of this is going to be what we're going to begin to talk about today alright Matthew chapter 16 I'm going to read a little bit, then I'm going to stop and explain some things, and then we're going to go on through this. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples a question. And the question that he asked was, Who do men say that I am? And that's our subject. The title for today's message is The Question. Life is full of questions. There are all kinds of surveys out there. You can answer surveys with text. There's surveys all over the place. Everybody's asking questions, and what do you think of this person, and, and, and polls, and, and all those things come up. But there's only one question that's ultimately important, and that question is, who is Jesus? And that's what we're going to study and see, that's why I said to you when you hear it, you say, oh, well, I know who he is. Do you? 
I mean, you're not going to hear some strange things like he's, you know, some creature from outer space. I don't mean you're going to hear something new that you've never heard before, but you're going to hear it at a level in your heart that will change you. And that's what the Spirit of God is after. To take, and you may hear some things you don't know about him, and you may discover some things you think about him aren't true. But he starts by pulling his disciples apart and says, Who do men, who do men say I am? Obviously, people have been talking about him. See, the, the, the thing about Jesus is people had opinions. He didn't come, grow up, go through a ministry, and then die, and nobody wondered who he was. Everywhere he went, he was the subject of conversation. Everywhere he went, he was the issue that was discussed. And people either thought he was the greatest thing that had ever come, or they were angry and wanted to kill him. But he always brought who he was to the forefront. And that's what he wants to do again today. Because the church has gotten comfortable with our knowledge of who he is. Well, we're Christians. We believe in Jesus. We love Jesus. And we come and we operate not only in church, but in our whole week without some awareness of who he is, living our life under an awareness of who he is. Because if you go through a day without being conscious of who he is to you, then you don't know who he is. If you go through a day not thinking about how important he is to you, you don't know who he is. Or you've known and you've lost touch. He's calling us back to something we've known before and then He's going to take us to a place in this knowledge of Him that's deeper than we've ever known before and that's why it will change you because He is the issue. Jesus is the issue. Whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, believe with that or not, it doesn't matter. He is the issue to God. He is the issue. So I want to, I want to just share with you a few excerpts and we could spend weeks doing this, going through them, of just different people that were provoked to ask this question from different perspectives. And then we'll get into the answer that's given here. In John chapter 8, you know, you turn there. Jesus gets into this discussion with the Pharisees. Because they come to him and says, you know, we've been thinking about you. Well, that's good. But they weren't thinking about him because they wanted to understand who they, he was. They were thinking about him because they wanted to be able to dismiss what he said. And they're Christians that do that today. They redefine him so that they can dismiss what he says. That's what the world's doing. We've talked about that with idolatry. They're trying to redefine God so they can dismiss what he says in his word. So they'll say God doesn't exist. That's redefining him. But you can't redefine your creator. He could redefine you. But you can't redefine... You can say what you want about him. It doesn't change who he is. But whatever he says about you, that's what happens. So they were trying to redefine who he is. They were trying to be able to, in their own thinking, justify what they were doing by, by dismissing what he says. So they come to him and says. Oh, we know, we don't have to listen to you because you're giving witness of yourself. Why would we have to listen to you? Because you're the, you're, you're the one that verifies your own authority. 
Like, who else is going to do it? And Jesus says, no, it's my Father that bears witness of me. And he's shocked about the works that he did. And then he, he really got him upset because he starts talking about who he is. And he talks about my father. He's talking about God as his father. And that really got him mad. See, that'll get religious people upset. When you talk about a relationship with God, that makes religious people uncomfortable. And he made them very uncomfortable. So they get into this discussion with him. And I think it's verse 25. They said, all right, then who are you? See, they didn't know. The interesting thing is these were the Pharisees. They were in charge of teaching the people what the Scripture said about the coming of the Messiah. They were in charge from God of teaching the people to prepare them to receive the Messiah when He came. And when the Messiah was standing in front of them, instead of receiving Him, they tried to dismiss Him because He made them uncomfortable because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. See, that's the initial issue. If you just want to do what you want to do, ultimately, God may just let you do that. Now, we all have in our flesh this drive to do what we want to do, but I don't want to get away with it. Some people are uncomfortable to discover that God knows everything about you. Don't be shocked. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows the thoughts you haven't had yet. He knows the words that were on your tongue you didn't speak but wanted to speak. He knows everything about you down to its infinite little detail. Some people that makes uncomfortable. And some people... It gives him peace because I'm not going to get away with anything with him because I don't want to. So the Pharisees asked this question, all right then, who are you? Now they weren't asking because they wanted the answer. They were trying to trick him. People ask this question with different motives. And the motive with which you ask this question will determine the answer you get. If you really want to know who He is, then the Spirit of God will reveal to you who He is. But if you want to know who He is so you can dismiss Him, you're already deceived. All right, that's fun already, isn't it? But I want to know the truth. I want to know the truth. I don't want to fool myself and then turn around and deceive you. I want to know the truth. Jesus says, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. That implies if I don't know the truth, I'm bound up. The truth of God, the light of God will deliver you and set you free. And save your soul and save your life, save your body. It will be all that God... But God is truth and He only deals in truth. So you cannot have God working in your life if you're not willing to deal in truth because He is truth. That's like when we discussed last year, He is love. You can't have God and not have love. You can't choose between the two because He is love. Well, He is truth. It is, he doesn't tell the truth. He is truth. John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. That doesn't say God tells the truth. That says whatever God says, that's what truth is. All right, we better move along. 
Well, let's see who else does. In Luke chapter 7, there's a story of some of the Pharisees gathering at the house of a man named Simon, not Simon Peter. This is one of the Pharisees. And while they're sitting around and they've been eating, a woman comes in and she's a prostitute. And she comes up at the feet of Jesus and she's crying out of, out of guilt oh, and washing his feet with her hair. And he looks at her and says, Woman, your sins are forgiven you. Well, that really upset the Pharisees. And they said, Who is this man that he can forgive sins? And that's the question you need to have an answer for today. Because if you don't know who he is and that he can forgive sins, you won't turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins. If you don't know that he will forgive your sins, you won't come to him. If you think in coming to him, he's going to strike you with a stick because he's angry at you, then you don't know him. And if you think that's what he's like, you won't come to him. So you'll relate to him on the basis of who you think he is. That's why it's important to know who he says he is. Not what I think or you think or anybody other wonderful writer that in the books we have in the bookstore or the Christian bookstores. Those are great, but it's what he says that counts. So the Pharisees here said, well, who is this man that thinks he can forgive sins? Basically saying, who does he think he is that he has the right to forgive sins of this sinner? Of course, they didn't realize that in God's sight, they were just as much sinners. All right, let's look at somebody else. Now it gets really interesting because now we got John the Baptist, his cousin, who baptized him in the Jordan River and heard God speak from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Saw the Holy Spirit come on him. Later on, John is arrested. He's in prison, essentially waiting to be beheaded. And his, John's disciples keep coming to him saying, this Jesus that you baptized, he's performing miracles. He's opening blind eyes. He's raising the dead. He's doing all these things. And John, see, in his humanness, I mean, he's arrested. He's in jail for doing what he was supposed to do. He has questions. Ever, ever go through a time when you know, you know, you just, you, you're just walking so straight with God and you just, you're just, your faith is right there and you, you, everything just settled to you? Oh, come on, devil, come at me because I know who I am in Christ. I know who God is. I know God's going to come through. And you wake up the next morning and wonder, what happened? And it's like, I don't even know if I'm saved today. And you begin to question things. and Oh, my goodness. And then you begin to see when you've been doing this for a while, you understand you just go through those times. John the Baptist was going through one of those times. So his disciples come to him, visiting him, and he says, go to him and ask him this question. Ask him, are you really the one? This is John the Baptist had times when he, he wasn't so sure. And he said, are you really the one? It's interesting because Jesus sends them back and quotes scripture to them. It says, tell them that he raises the dead, he opens the blind eyes. He does, and I'll show you the scripture in a few minutes, that he's fulfilling. But John the Baptist had questions. Are you, are you really the one that we've been waiting for? Are you really the one? This is, this is, now we're talking about guys on his side, Okay. Let's look at some others. Uh, Mark chapter 4. 
Well, I'm going to skip that one. Let's go, we'll go back to that. In, in John chapter 8, we have the story of, of Zacchaeus. I like Zacchaeus. He's, he, they say he was a man of short stature. I'm assuming that's physical stature. It may be, but, but he was a chief tax collector. And he heard about Jesus. And Jesus was coming through his town, so he decided he wanted to see him. And because he it has to be physically short, he couldn't see him over the crowds, you know, like, like this, you know, like all these crowds that we see at the royal wedding, you know, people. I don't know how some of them ever saw anything. And so he decides because he really wants to see him, he would climb the tree. So he's climbing this tree, he's hanging up in this tree looking down as Jesus comes by and Jesus looks up at him and says, Zacchaeus calls him by name and says, come down, today I'm going to eat with you in your house. But what it said about Zacchaeus, it says Zacchaeus, the tax collector, climbed to a tree because he wanted to see who this man was. So he's coming out of curiosity. But not just an idle curiosity. Hey, I wonder who this guy is. He obviously is some kind of seeker because something's touched his heart and he wants to know more fully who is this man that all this commotion's about enough so he's going to climb a tree. Now, he's a chief tax collector. That means he has a position in the community. It may not be that loved by his own people, but it's a position that he's not going to just do something like climb a tree. You know, little kids climb trees. Chief tax collectors didn't climb trees. But he climbed a tree because his desire to know who this man was was strong enough to risk, oh, and this is good, to risk his own prestige and self-image. He was willing to set aside what other people thought of him because he had a strong enough desire to know who is this man? Who is this man that I'm hearing so much about? Something in his heart wanted to know who he was. All right. (laughs) King Herod, after he executed John the Baptist, hears stories about a man out there raising the dead, opening blind eyes, performing miracles, drawing huge crowds. And he says, wait a minute. I beheaded John the Baptist, then who's this man? So Herod asked the question, who is he? I thought I stopped all this. I can't seem to stop him. Who is this man? So Herod, who was the king, the Jewish king in Palestine at that time, at the great feast in Jerusalem, Jews, when they found him, John chapter 10 says to Jesus, please don't keep us in suspense. If you really are the Christ, then tell us plainly. So they're asking him, are you the Christ? His own disciples. This to me is the most telling one. I love these because it makes me, it shows me the humanity of them. His own disciples. This this one is in Mark, I think it's Mark 4. Yeah, Mark 4. He, he is... Uh, <laughs> I love this story, so I don't want to get off on it because I'll spend time just teaching out of the story. But he's told the disciples, let's get in the boat. <clears throat> We're going to go to the other side of the, of the sea. So they're in the boat, and he goes to sleep on a pillow in the back. A storm comes up. And I've talked about this story before. This storm is so bad that these fishermen think they're going down. Now, remember this. 
to be a professional fisherman on this sea, you also have to be a professional sailor. So this storm is bad enough that the professional sailors are afraid and panicked. And they get so afraid, they, I can just see them standing around this pillow he's sleeping on. Say, Peter, you ask him. John, no, you ask him. He loves you the best. <laughs> Philip, you ask him. Somebody's got to wake him up and ask him because we're going down. So finally somebody wakes him up and says, Master, Master. And they said to him, Don't you care about us that we're going to die? See, when you get afraid, see, they still didn't know him. They still didn't know his character. And these were the men picked by him who lived with him. You understand his disciples didn't go to work nine to five and you know, stay at home and then you know, punch the clock, come in, say, Master, we're here. What are we going to do today? And then at five, punch out and go home. You know. No, they lived with him except when he sent them out to do things. And there were times when they would go back home. These are men that have lived with him. They've watched him open blind eyes. They've watched him feed thousands of people several times. They've watched him raise the dead. And, 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 and they've watched him, words of love come out of him and do everything out of this compassionate love. And now he's asleep. And they wake him up in fear. This is what fear will do. They wake him up in fear and they attack his character. Because they say, don't you care about us You're sleeping when we think we're going down. Did you ever think about that about God? Does He really care about me? Does He know I'm in this situation? Doesn't He understand I'm about to drown? Doesn't He know where I am? Does He care about me because I'm not hearing Him give me words of reassurance? See, that defines what you think of Him. And we're all growing. We're all growing. See, they were growing. They wake Him up. And Jesus goes out to the bow of the boat. He doesn't yell and scream, spit, doesn't sue some religious incantation. He just, this is like saying, oh, that's what you're bothered about? Peace, be still. And turns around and goes back to the back of the boat. And the winds stop and the waves calm down and they look at him. And the verse says, they wondered who he is. What manner of man is this? His disciples are asking, who is he? Now they had a revelation, they had an understanding of who he is, and now they're seeing something that's drawing them to a deeper understanding of who this man is, because they said, even the wind and the waves obey him. So his own disciples who knew him or thought they knew him suddenly because of an incident realized, I don't really know who this man is. And it began to change them. Because then he rebukes them, basically saying, why did you wake me up? How come you didn't do it? Because you see, it's their knowledge of what manner of man he is that begins to change your knowledge of what manner of man he's made you to be. Paul talks to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and then again in chapter 3. He says, when you're doing what the world does, he says, you're operating like mere men. That means God expects us to not operate like mere men. You're not a mere man or woman. I mean, you understand what I mean by that? You're not just a, a human being. 
if you've come to Christ. You are a child of the living God. You are a Christian, which means you are one of Him, part of Him. He is the head, we studied that last year, and we are the body of Christ. So we need to know who this Christ is because we're the same as He is because it's one body. So we're going to study this year who the head of the body is because the head of the body determines who the body is and what the body can do. So it starts by looking at the head because the head defines the body. The reason I know that's Ron Blaine is not by looking at his tie or his suit or his hands. I recognize his face. And I don't say, that's Ron Blaine's face. I don't know who the suit is. I don't know the shoulders. I don't know who the arms are. But I know that head. No. I know that's all Ron because I recognize it's Ron because I recognize who the head is. His identity comes from a knowledge of his head. And in 1 John chapter 4, it says, And when he returns, we shall discover that we are him. You're not going to become like him when he appears in the clouds. It's when you see him face to face, you're going to go, Woo! I'm just like him. But it isn't shocking that my hands should have the same identity as my head. Now, my hands have it, don't look the same because they have a different function. But it's my body. That's why we spent so much time last year on that. And the disciples think, their revelation of who he is that day got deeper. They began to realize they didn't really know who he is. Because what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. All right, let's look at a couple more because then we're going to get into the question. When he enters Jerusalem for the final time on the, on the eve of the Feast of Passover where the multitudes line the city streets and he comes in on the donkey in what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. It says in Matthew 21.10, the whole city was moved, the whole city, saying, who is this man? Wherever he went, he provoked this question, who is he? Who is this man? Who is this man? And now we see the whole city's in an uproar and everybody on every street corner saying, who is he? Who is he? Who? I want to ask you a question. How come the church doesn't ask that anymore? How come we don't talk about it? I'm talking to me as much as you. How come the church doesn't talk about this anymore, who he is? Is it because we know him so well? We don't need to think about that or talk about that? Well, if that's so, it would show up in our lives because we would act just like him. Or is it this issue, this question has kind of become something that's sort of way in the background because we have other things that are more important to do. And I'm not just talking about a personal lives. I mean in church. This is the question. But in Jerusalem, at that time, on every street corner, in every kind of establishment, whether it was in a bar or whether it was on in the temple, they were all talking about, who is this man? Who is this man? Who is this man? 
Who is this man? Who is this man? He was the issue. And he still is today. It's just that we've lost sight of him as the issue because we're so familiar with who he is. We're content with what we know of who he is in our life. And that's the first thing I believe that the Spirit of God wants to challenge us so that we're no longer content with what I know of him. All right. Then, of course, he's tried, and even Pilate, the Roman governor, signed by, the, by Caesar. Jesus is standing before him, and he asks the question, Are you the king of the Jews? Mark 15, 2. Are you the king of the Jews? And then finally, and there are many others we could talk about, even after Jesus has died and been raised from the dead, there's a man on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 on his way to persecute Christians with letters of authority to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem so they can be tried and ultimately executed. And at noonday, a blinding light strikes him so strong he falls off his horse and he stands up and he says, Who art you, Lord? He recognized someone with greater authority and power had visited him and he'd fallen off his horse. Now he wants to know, And who are you that's Lord? And Jesus answered and said, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. Can you imagine what that must have found, been like to Paul? to discover that everything, every fiber of his being was filled with passion. Because he, he was not doing this because he hated Christians. He was doing it because he was so zealous for the law and for God and for doing what was right for God. And that's what a lot of religious people do. They, they, they offend Jesus because they're trying, to, they're trying to defend God and do what they think is what God wants instead of listening to him and what he says in his word because he'll tell you what he wants. Paul says, who art thou? And he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. So now let's go back to Matthew 16. Now we understand why Jesus is saying to them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Verse 14. And they said, some say... You're John the Baptist, basically come back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, the great prophet, who's come back from the dead. And others claim that you must be Jeremiah. See, everybody had an opinion? They all were, had an opinion about who he was. So some said, well, you're John the Baptist. Some said you're Elijah, the prophet, come back. Some said maybe you're Jeremiah. They all had an opinion. People have an, everybody has an opinion today. Everybody that's heard his name has some kind of opinion about him. You cannot hear his name and not have some kind of an opinion about him. But now look what he does. He said, what, who do men say that I am? And they've told him, so they've been hearing who men say that I am. And now he turns to them with the question of the ages. And he said to them, but... I want to teach you something of how to read your Bible. Little words are often so important. For instance, the word no, N-O. Two-letter word. 
How can that be important? Well, it can be the difference of life or death. If somebody says to you, you know, do you want me, do you want, do you want, would you like some strychnine for lunch? And you can't remember the word no? Now, that's not the best example, but it's a little word that can turn everything around. The first word in their answer is the word but, B-U-T. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means we're going this way, and now there's a turnaround, and we're going to go this way. Jesus says to them, that's who, you've answered me who men think I am, but now I'm changing the focus. And he's turning around, and he's now going to point at them. Who do you say that I am? That's what I want to talk about for the time we have, I think. I don't think we'll finish this issue today. It's a simple question. Everybody has an opinion of who Jesus is, but every one of you and, every, and me, all of us, everyone that's ever lived is going to have to answer this question. It is the question of the ages, and you can't avoid it because to avoid it is to answer it. To avoid it is to answer it. It's a question that demands an answer, that doesn't give you the option of abstaining in Congress and other legislatures when it comes time to vote on an issue. They can either say yay, which is yes, or nay, which is no, but they have the option of copping out. They call it abstaining or, not, or, or present. So I'm here, but I'm not voting one way or the other. With this question, we don't have that option. You, are, you have no option. You can try to, but you don't make the rules. They're God's rules. And the question is, it doesn't matter what the president says he is. It doesn't matter who the newspapers say he is. It doesn't matter who the Supreme Court says he is or isn't. It doesn't matter who writes whatever book and says he doesn't exist or who he is. It doesn't matter what opinions they have. It doesn't even matter what I think. For you, who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? You have to answer it. Because the answer is not always just with words. It's in our heart. And God looks into the heart and sees who in your heart you say He is. Now, this isn't heavy because what God wants to do is deepen your knowledge of who He is because as He deepens your knowledge of who He is, it will change your knowledge of who you are. And it will change your relationship with Him. See, this God's doing this not because He's angry at us. He's trying to bring us to a higher level. He's trying to give you the strength to do what you already know you should do. And the strength does not come because you try harder. The strength comes from who He is and a greater revelation of who He is. Okay, that's what they say I am, who I am. 
But here's the question. Who do you say that I am? Who? That means he could be all kinds of different things. Who do you say that he is? Is your savior? What's that mean? Is your healer? Why do you serve him? The question you need to ask yourself every once in a while. Why do I serve? Because why you serve him will determine what you're willing to do. Why you serve him will determine what you're willing to do for him. If you see him as your blesser, and he is, then what you'll do is you'll serve him as long as you see the blessing. But when you don't see the blessing, you'll go find whoever will provide that blessing. And God blesses us. But if you see him as the blesser, and that's who he is to you, that's the root of who he is to you, then when that bless you don't see the blessing, what are you going to do? Because the basis of your relationship is now not there. Do you see him as your savior? Well, that's the biggest one. All right, what do he save you from? Well, you know, I was discouraged and I was down and God saved me and lifted me up and he's, you know, my life is much better. And that's wonderful and that's good. But if that's really the depth of who you see he is, then what happens is you really only serve him to the degree that you're experiencing all that. See, this is why the history of the church is a series of cycles where it goes through times of, of great blessing and prosperity and then there's times of terrible persecution. And what happens in the times of persecution is the church gets stronger, not weaker, because our motives for serving him get tested. See, it's fairly easy to worship God in a nice building with air conditioning where you had the legal right to come here and people weren't going to throw stones at you and you weren't going to be put on some secret list and visited tonight by secret police. It's easy to serve him when we can decide, you know, which Bible am I going to take with me today? Uh, Take the dust off that one. I haven't used that one in a while. And take that to church. Or just forget because I'm so used to having it around. It's easy when everything's going well. It's hard to really define who I think he is when everything's going my way. It's kind of like authority. You really only know whether somebody's under your authority when you tell them no, and they want yes. When everybody, when, when you're saying, yeah, that's fine, you're doing a great job, everything's you know, you don't know whether somebody's really submitted to authority because they're doing what they want to do anyway. It just happens to coincide with what you've told them to do. It's when what you're told to do doesn't coincide with what you want to do or what you think's right. That's when you find out where your attitude of, towards authority is. And by the way, just so you know how important that is, it's vital to God. How you respond to the human authority God's put over you is right up there with God with walking in love. Why? Because when God's assigned somebody as an authority in your life, the way you respond to that authority is an indication of how you respond to him because he's the one that put that person there. Because you can't say, I don't respect that authority, but I respect you, God, even though you put them there over me. You can't do that. 
See, that's why the way we relate to one another is a real window into what we really think of God. See, what you really think of God comes out not by what you say or what you do on Sunday. It's by the attitudes and actions of our life during the week, especially when things don't go the way we want them to. Isn't this fun? Isn't this exciting? Oh, Pastor. Teach on God's love. I am. I am. I am. See, God is a good Father. You know, the word that keeps coming to me this week is the word of God is profitable for reproof, for correction. It doesn't say a whole lot in there about comfort. It really doesn't. I went through and read it again this week. I checked it out. I checked my manual. See, I got a manual for how to pastor you. I went back and looked at the manual, and I saw those words jumped out. It says, the word of God is profitable. Do you want the word of God to profit you? You see, God does it out of love. Because he loves us, he will correct us. Praise God. But who do you, who do you say I am? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. Who do I really say that he is? Not with my words, because I'll say, yeah, he's Lord, he's, you know. But who do I say with my actions that he is? Because if I say, you're my Lord, and then I just go do what I want to do because I intend to do that all along, that's what I say with my mouth. If you read Isaiah, God addresses the, church, the Israel through Isaiah by saying, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. But who do you say I am? And notice who's asking the question. Jesus is personally asking them, and who do you say I am? Well, let's get into Peter's answer. So this is what we're going to be studying is, who is he? Verse 15, But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, he always was ready to answer, answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what does that mean? Keep something there and go with me to Luke chapter 4. The word, the name Christ is the Greek word Christos. You, you understand this. Now, some of you have heard this before, and I'm not funny, but, but this is our attitude. We're learning who he is. Christ is not his last name. That shocks some people. They think Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. My name's John Pfeffer. Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. Christ is his title. It's the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one. The Hebrew version of it is Meshua, or the English version of that is Messiah, the anointed one. So Peter's saying, I know who you are. You're the, the anointed one. Now Luke chapter 4 is the story where Jesus comes back to his hometown after he has been baptized in the Jordan River, been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's about to begin his public ministry. He goes back to his hometown, 
Verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, well, we could preach that this morning, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Every male member of a synagogue had the right to read Scripture. The women had to sit on... There was an outer part of the synagogue. They couldn't come into the inner part. Only the men could come in. And only if you had been admitted to that particular synagogue. You were of age and you had been gone through the ritual of being admitted. Go in. But once you were in that, you had the right to stand up and read Scriptures. So Jesus stands up, as was his custom, to read a Scripture. And you understand the Bible that they had was not like yours. It wasn't pages. It was a scroll. And it still is in some in synagogues today. The Torah. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, he'd, written, he'd read this before in that synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, I'm not telling you this is what the Bible says. This is me. This is John. Okay, but I'm, I'm pretty sure this is right. There must have been other times when young Jesus, who was now part of the synagogue, maybe at age 14, at some point stood up, it was with his right, and read these same scriptures. If it wasn't Jesus, they've heard this scripture read hundreds of times by different men in this synagogue. But this time, when it's read, it's different. Because they're not reading, having, they're not listening to a reading that's talking about somebody else that was going to come sometime. These words are now being read by the very one that these words are talking about. So when Jesus said, you can tell when someone sings a gospel song and you know they know the Lord and love Him, and they're singing about Him, as opposed to some professional singer that doesn't know Him, doesn't care about Him, but they're going to make money because it's a popular song. There's a difference. When you see young people singing about, God, how great Thou art, and you know it's coming from their heart because He is that to them. So Jesus is speaking now, and He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And I don't believe he raised his voice because he didn't have to. But somehow when he said me, it was clear to them the me it was talking about was him. The Spirit of the Lord is now upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty or free those that are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That was the year of Jubilee, which was every 50 years. And now we don't have time to go into all the details of it, but it was every 50 years. Oh, and this sounds good. Every debt was canceled. Every contract was brought back to where you were. In other words, everybody got a fresh start every 50 years. Whatever obligations, bondage you were under, they were wiped out. You got a fresh start. 
Now, obviously, that was not just for them at that time, but it was proclaiming a day that was going to come when God would do that. When God would say, all right, your debt's washed away. You'll get a fresh start with me. And Jesus said, because it's part of the scripture in Isaiah 61, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now look what he does. And he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Something was different this time than every other time that's been read because their eyes were open, first of all. They weren't asleep in church. Something must have been different because he hands the book back to the attendant and he goes to sit down and everybody's watching. This, they know this kid. He grew up in, town, in their city, in their town. It's not like he's some stranger, but he's looking different to them now because there's something different about him. And of course, as we've talked about before, they got hung up because they couldn't change their image of who he is. Their image of who Jesus is as well. Yeah, we know him. He grew up in, you know, we saw him as a little boy. We knew his mom and dad, his brothers and sisters. Some of them are still with us. You know, we know the boy. He's a good boy. He's got a good career. That good Jewish boy has a good career. Going to do well for himself. Please his mother. That was kind of their attitude. And it says they were offended at him because what he presented to them was a Jesus that was different than the one that had grown up. He had stepped into his calling and his purpose. And now they were being asked this question, who do you say he is now? And so he's announcing, Peter says, you are the Christ, the anointed one. And see, they all knew Isaiah 61. They had to memorize before they were 12 years old and received into the synagogue. They had to memorize, not learn, memorize the first five books of the Bible and Isaiah, the longest book of the Bible. So they had committed to memory this verse. They knew who this verse is talking about. And notice, he doesn't even say anything. He just reads it and sits down and then says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. So Peter says, You are the anointed one. Now, this scripture says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. For God has anointed him. So the one that anointed him is God the Father. It wasn't the priests. It wasn't the rabbis. It wasn't the disciples. He has been anointed by the creator of the universe for a purpose. And so the beginning of understanding who he is is to first of all recognize he is the anointed one anointed by God to do something for us.